So this morning I get to share the word today. We are in a series, and I don't really do series very often, but I felt compelled to go back into Revelation. You know, Revelation is intimidating to talk about. Because if, if, if somebody says they know exactly what it means, I don't think you should actually listen to them. Right? Because it's really, it's, it's a book that is just so complicated and so complex. It's really important that we, that we read it and we open it with reverence and really dependence on the Holy Spirit. Because, wow, yeah. So if somebody tells you that they know exactly what it means, I think you should probably go, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Adrian is Adrian is um, wanting me to explain some things. So there's a it's called eschatology. So eschatology is the study of the end times, and in eschatology are all these terms that certain denominations hold to. Right? They believe in premillennialism. They believe in pre-rapture. They believe in post-rapture. They believe in amillennialism. And I could not stand before you and explain all of them and allow you to choose the difference. The point is, is that you have to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit in order to approach this word. Amen? And that's what we talked about last week. We didn't even get out of Revelation 1 last week because it was all about Jesus as the ascended King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that's not on the cross anymore. He's standing with a long robe with a golden sash and white wool hair and fire in his eyes and a sword from his mouth. He's the risen king, right? And that he is that king in all of our circumstances. He's that king in this room very now, very right now and in our family right now. And so as we approach the book of Revelation, we have to, we have to realize that we're approaching him. And so that we do that with the reverence, right? John was his best friend. We talked about that. And he couldn't even stand on his feet in his presence because he was so struck with reverence and holy fear. So we're going to recap a little bit of, Rever of, of Revelation 1. And that is exactly that, that he revealed himself to John as the king of kings and the high priest. You know, he did this with Daniel as well in the Old Testament. Remember the Daniel prophecies? And a lot of them line up and they're quoted in the book of Revelation because John knew the word. And Jesus will always confirm his word with his word. There's no other truth. And if you're studying your Bible, that's how to understand your Bible is you, you study your Bible and you confirm the word with the word. You go into the Old Testament and you see how it confirms who Jesus is. But in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Daniel actually saw Jesus. He saw the risen king in this night vision. It says, I saw another spectacle in the night visions. I looked and saw someone like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was ushered into his presence. In verse 14, it says, To him was given authority, honor, and a kingdom, so that all people of every heritage, nationality, and language might serve him. His dominion will last forever, and his throne will never pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. We belong to that kingdom. 
So we look at this book of Revelation and we remember it's the revealing of Jesus. It's the revealing of his kingdom, the establishing of his kingdom, which we are a part of. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. We are going to be serving our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords in his kingdom when he comes glorified. Amen? In this verse, um, he's shown as the high priest, actually, in Revelation 1.13. It says, And walking among the lampstands, I saw someone like the Son of Man wearing a full-length robe with a golden sash over his chest. And every time we see the robe, we think of the ephod, ephod. And that was the priestly garment. Did I say it right, David? How do you say it? Ephod. It was the priestly garment. Only the priests could wear this. It was for the serving of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? And Jesus appears to John as the priest. You know, this ephod, ephod, it's hard. We don't use these words every day. Ephod, this robe was so intricately planned out and designed. And this has nothing to do with our message, but I seriously was just amazed by this. So it was sewn with six linen, white linen threads, right? And every seventh thread was pure gold thread. Isn't that amazing? Like think about the, the, the detail in that. Because six represents the number of man. Seven represents, all through the Bible, the number of perfection, of wholeness, of completeness, the number of God. They took the detail of the robe, right, to interweave the gold so that we know that when we come before the God, right, of the universe, we are, ro- we are clothed with his perfection, And that's who Jesus is, and that's what he has on. And he's walking among the churches. He's walking among here. I felt him here when I walked in the door. When we came on Friday night and we worshiped, this is his house. And it's not about a physical, right, building. It's about your life. He's walking among the lampstands. And if we pay attention, we'll see him, and we'll invite him to come into our circumstances. He's our faithful high priest. But here's the thing, these stories as we go in through, not stories, but these messages as we go through the messages to the churches, these aren't about really the churches. They're about the light that's on the lampstand. It's always about Jesus, amen? And he gives us the oil for the lamps so that we can burn bright for him. So this week, we're going to talk about Ephesus. And last Sunday, I shared a little bit that Ephesus actually means desirable one or darling. It was the word that a bridegroom would use for his bride. Darling, Ephesus, right? And they used Ephesus. They called it that because it was a great city. It was an amazing city in the area, which is now modern-day Turkey, So Revelation 2.1, we're in chapter (laughs) 2. It says, write the following to the messenger of the congregation in Ephesus. Now, a lot of people have different opinions about who that messenger was. It could have been an angel. Some people say it was an actual messenger. Some people say it was a pastor that was covering, maybe a deacon or an elder that was covering that church. But they said, give this message. Jesus said, I have a message for her. I have a message for my darling And so Ephesus was a city, 
It was a pretty big city. It was founded in about a thousand, I'm giving you some history just to kind of wrap it in your mind so you know we're actually talking about a place. A thousand BC, it was established by the Greeks and throughout the the whole, all those thousands of years, it ended up being in Roman control in 133 BC. The location, like I said, was in modern day Turkey. I think I have a, a yeah, there we go. So modern day Turkey. So you can see here Patmos is where the island that he was um, exiled to. And then this was where his home was. And remember, Jesus gave John his mother, basically, when he was on the cross. He said, John, this is your mother. So John probably had Mary there as well, taking care of her. She probably lived out her life there. Really amazing information, isn't it? So we have this picture, and then John actually was kind of a bishop of the other churches. So that's why Jesus gave him the message for these seven churches, because he had a personal vested leadership and interest in those places. Um, so Ephesus, they're on the, on the shores of the Aegean coast, I guess, in the southwestern corner of Turkey. So there were roads that were created to all of these other cities. The population of Ephesus was the third largest city. He was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, about 250,000. So if you think about it, that's a pretty big city, right? That's a pretty big, well-established city. Um, the ethnic makeup of the inhabitants of Ephesus, um, they were, there was a lot of Jews there. There were a lot of Romans there because Rome would put their people there so they could influence the culture. There were a lot of Greeks there because the Greeks had, had, um, had control over that um, city beforehand. So there was a multicultural representation of people. Um, it was given its name because of the greatness of the city. Commerce was huge. It was kind of like New York City. Obviously, the population wasn't as big, but that's where a lot of ships came in and, and brought goods and services to be traded in that area. Sailors would come in, right, and just spend weeks there. So the population kind of grew and then got smaller, but there was a lot going on in the city of Ephesus. As far as the culture, it was more like Las Vegas, Lots going on there, okay? So they had a Greek goddess, Artemis, who was also the Roman goddess, Diana. They just changed her name. But there was a lot of idol worship. There was a lot of paganism. That's what it is. It's paganism in the culture. And so there was a lot going on. There was a big temple that was built. Can you put that picture up? It was actually called one of the seven wonders of the world. It was so big. And people would come from all over, and they would worship this goddess of Artemis. And she was a goddess of fertility and all these other things. And so you can imagine it just was really gross stuff. Um, we won't get into some of the details there. But there were also about 50 other pagan gods. So this culture was just full of idol worship. So the Christians there, they were... They were not the majority. They were the minority trying to establish the truth and the gospel. Um, there was a lot of Gnosticism and magic. So there was a lot of like um, practicing paganism. A lot of the influence um, of demons were found when whole cities would get sick. 
and they would they would go and perform exorcisms to cure everyone and a lot of the sicknesses and diseases were blamed on demons so Ephesus is where remember the story in Acts 19 the sons of Sceva they were the people that saw Paul and and the apostles using the name of Jesus so powerfully they thought well we can say the name of Jesus so we're going to try to cast out these demons with the name of Jesus and what did the demons say I know Paul but I don't know you. Who are you trying to use this name? You better know him if you use this name. And they ended up, ended up backfiring on him, and they got attacked by these demons. Um, it's where the Christians burn their magic books. So after hearing the gospel, the truth, they said, you know what? We don't need these books anymore. We're going to burn them. We are not going to be practicing this magic and this paganism. There was a great revival in Ephesus. Great revival. To the point where the idol makers... The silversmiths, they were getting angry at the church because the money started changing, right? The, the tide started turning, and now they're not bringing in their idol money anymore. And so they started a riot. So there was persecution to the church in Ephesus. They had to be strong Christians. You know, I read some of these stories, and I'm like, I complain about the weather, right? <laughs> like... I, we gotta, we gotta get our muscles, right? We gotta get our muscles, cause what are we, what are we complaining about? We don't have people knocking on our door saying, give me your Bible. Give me your Bible, right? We don't have that. We have to, we have to realize that, man, these churches were some tough churches. Um, so the gospel was preached throughout Asia, and the, the, it was really the mothership of that movement. It was like the Lorraine campus, right? It's where it all started. Ephesus is where Paul wrote most of his letters to the church, some in prison, obviously, but some of them were written right from Ephesus. It's where Timothy started his ministry. First and second Timothy, it's where Timothy started his ministry and began his leadership. And then John, the apostle John, eventually um, pastored there and most likely took care of Mary there. Um, so the church started but with John the Baptist's disciples, actually. It was really interesting. John the Baptist's disciples were there, and they had kind of a half gospel, you know? And, and Paul came and said, listen, you need the whole gospel. And so they taught them about Jesus, and they got baptized in Jesus' name. And then uh, he left Apollos and Priscilla there. No, I'm sorry. Aquila and a Priscilla to Disciple Apollo. There we go. There we go. You guys aren't going to remember any of that anyways. But discipleship happened. That's what I want you to remember. Discipleship happened because that's important. Paul went on his missionary journeys and eventually came back to Ephesus and stayed for two years teaching the people there. So they really became a very strong church. They were strong. They weren't going anywhere. Right? They, they had their roots, they knew their doctrine, and we'll talk about that here soon. But this all happened within like 40 or 50 years. So from the time Jesus died to the time Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, the church, the church there in that city started, it was about 50 AD, right? And then that was about 20 years after Jesus died. So John establishes, Paul establishes the church. John is there in Ephesus. They're growing the church up. This was a thriving church. Now, the message to John was given about 85 to 90 AD. And again, there's a lot of controversy there. I did my study. I'm settling on that. It was probably around 85 to 90 AD when John got this message 
to the church, to the churches. Okay. So if you think about it, that's like 40 years of church. Our church is about 50 years old. So it's kind of like very, I was like really having this, um, this, it, epiphany, yeah, thank you, <laughs> of like, wow, I can kind of see our church in this, you know, where our, our Lorraine campus started, and, and it's such a strong church, and there's so many amazing people, and there's so much service, and, and, and strength, and doctrine, and, and all of this, and then what happens with the next generation, and the next generation, so if you have a church that's about 40 years, you can, you can expect to have about three generations, Right, because if my dad started, he didn't actually start the church. Long story, but if he was the pastor of the church and I grew up in the church, and now Dion is serving in the church, that's three generations. So this is the kind of church we're talking to, and it helps to understand that when we look at what he's saying to John. Okay, so let's go to that. This is the message. He affirmed their strength first, and this is where I want to go first because I don't want to just go to what was wrong, what's happening, why are they doing this wrong thing. We want to talk about their strengths. In Revelation 2, 2 through 3, it says, I know your deeds, your tireless labor, and your patient endurance. I know that you do not tolerate those who do evil. Furthermore, you have diligently tested those who claim to be emissaries. Now, the word emissary is just apostle. It's the ones that tried to come in and take over. They tried to come out in and lead, and they tested them because they knew what the word said. They were solid in their doctrine, and we'll get there. You have found that they are not true witnesses. You have correctly found them to be false. In verse 3, I know you are patiently enduring and holding firm on behalf of my name. You have not become faint. So this church was strong. They were solid in their doctrine and their understanding of what was truth and what was false. So we're going to go through the three strengths the way I see it. The first thing is that they were kingdom builders. They were kingdom builders. They were invested in building the kingdom of God. What did that look like? That looked like serving, right? It's hard. It's hard to serve in church because you know what? I know you all have full-time jobs. You leave here and you go to work on Monday morning, right? I know what it's like to have another job besides this. It's a lot of juggling. But the kingdom of God was so important to them, they invested in the local church, in the local body. They did it in order to create the healthy community of faith that requires a kingdom, that is required for a kingdom to be established. It requires a healthy community of faith. And you know what that requires? For all of us to use our gifts. And I don't like to do this, but look at the person next to you or around you and ask them, are you using your gifts? See, it's so uncomfortable, isn't it? I used to hate it when people did that to me. <laughs> but we have to ask ourselves if we're using our gifts. Now, that doesn't mean you have to sign up on a sign-up sheet. That means that you have to ask the Lord what he would have you do. Because obedience to him is everything. Right? It's everything. 
Obedience to Jesus is everything. So they were kingdom builders, even when it was hard, even when there was persecution. Number two, they were clear on sin. Whoa. They were clear on sin. How many know that the world is not clear on sin right now? We don't even know what sin is, right? We don't know how to define it. We don't know who's right, who's wrong, what what you're doing, I have no clue, right? The churches, churches today are just not clear on sin. Or if they are clear on sin, they're quiet about it. So I call that soft on sin. So why is the world in need of a savior? That's the first question. That's the first question that we have to answer because sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. In Leviticus 11.44, it says, be holy because I'm holy. And we can't be holy by ourselves. We have to have a Savior. We have to have Jesus every day, every morning, every afternoon, every dinner time, right? Because I've tried to be holy before, and it doesn't work. The only way is found in my dependence on him. That's the only way. But do we hit people over the head? Say, sin, sin, you're sinning, you're sinning. No, because we know that doesn't work, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about lovingly not tolerating sin in their life. Why? Because sin separates them from God. It destroys them. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Sin in our life will kill us. It'll destroy us. It'll steal from us. So when we approach sin in someone's life, we do it out of a love, right? To rescue them and to help them get to God through the blood of Jesus. Romans 6, 1, do we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. We have to be clear on sin like the church of Ephesus. Number three, they were solid in the truth. There were people who would come in. They were shaking hands and kissing babies, right? Because people love to have influence. Have you noticed that? They love to have influence. And the church sometimes is a very vulnerable place for people that like to have influence. Trust me. I've been here a long time. They come in the door, and they want to tell you what they can do and who they are. And you can tell right away that they just want influence. Or do they want to serve? And all of us in here, we have to check our hearts. Why? Because it's normal flesh, right? That's normal. That's what flesh does. It wants accolades. It wants wants to be rewarded, right, for our smarts or for our talent. And it's it's just flesh. And we have to always check ourselves to understand and see if we're doing it for the right reasons and if God is, has the ability to humble us. But these people knew the real deal when they saw it. Why? Because they refused to live off of other people's spirituality. They refused. How many in here will say, I refuse to live off of somebody else's spirituality? That's the danger in church. Because you go out and you work all week, you come here and you sit down for two hours, an hour, an hour and a half, 
depends on who's preaching or who, what church you go to, right? But we have a tendency to just come and sit and receive. And that ends up being our spirituality for the week. But what happens when someone with wrong motives comes into your life? You can't tell anymore because you don't have enough doctrine. You don't have enough understanding. You don't have enough realization of who he is to be able to see the counterfeit. Remember when we, talk, we did that message a year ago? We put that dollar bill on the screen. How do you know if it's a counterfeit? You study the real thing. That's how they know. And we know that someone is the false teacher or a false, you know, has wrong motives by studying the real thing. Spending time with Jesus and understanding who he is and what his character's like, right? And not just that, we can see it in ourselves when it comes up because it'll come up. Why are you posting that? I had that happen to me this week. Why are you posting that, Mary? I'm like, oh, I thought I had good motives, but maybe I didn't, Holy Spirit. Right? We have to be careful with what comes out. We have to know the real thing and understand that Jesus wants us to be mature in faith. Ephesians 4.14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind, wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Instead, we mature and we grow more and more to be like Jesus. We can't just expect that to happen on a Sunday morning, right? We just can't. We have to know the word for ourselves. It's interesting that this verse comes from Ephesians. That was a letter to the Ephesians church earlier in their, in their upbringing, right, by Paul. So you saw that John confirmed it. They were mature, they were strong in their faith. They had become strong in their doctrine. And then this shows us how valuable their relationship with Paul was. Because you can see some obedience happening there. You can see that they paid attention to Paul's letter in Ephesians 4. And they grew themselves up in the faith. So by Revelation 2, they were mature and they could see trickery, right? They could see the false doctrine. So it's important to have mentors. It's important to have spiritual mothers and fathers, having people around you who will pray for you and war in the spirit over your life. Man, I have people in my life where I can call them or text them and say, pray for me, pray for my kids, pray for my marriage. What I'm going through right now, I need backup. Get some backup in your life. Hey, guys, <laughs> it's a nice day. Have fun outside. <laughs> They're waving to me back there. <laughs> but get some backup. Community is important. So Ephesus was pretty impressive. They were strong and solid. But here's the but. Jesus had one thing against them, right? And this is what we're going to talk about today. What time is it? I'm going to make sure I don't go too long. Oh, I'll finish fast. Revelation 2, 4, and 5, Jesus says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the passionate love you had for me at the beginning. Think about how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works of love you did at first. Isn't that a great version? Jesus is impressed with them, but he's heartbroken. 
He's not feeling loved by them anymore. This word love is agape, and it means love, right? There's another word that's used in the Bible. It's, it's philos. Am I saying it right, David? <laughs> philos. It's another Greek word that means love, but they're two different meanings of love. And some of you guys know this. We're going to go through it again, though, because they mean so much different um, in our lives. Philos is a love that you have for a brother or a sister. You know, I love my brother, Louis. I have love for him, right? Agape is a love that you have for your husband or your wife. I love my husband, Adrian. My love for Louis and my love for Adrian are completely different. I'm like, I love you, Lou. I have love for you. I love Adrian, right? I'm called to be his wife. I'm called to covenant with him. It's a different kind of love. It looks different. My love for Adrian is action. It's a verb. It's an, I'm in, in love with Adrian. And that we don't really have words to describe that love versus in love. It's love in the atmosphere. It's love in communication. It's love in relationship. It's moving and breathing, right? It's, it's that kind of love. It requires that I create an environment of being in love. We've been doing a lot of marriage discipleship work together. And we know that we both have separate missions in our marriage. My mission is to make Adrian feel loved and lovable. And it's only mine. There's no one else on the planet with that mission. Think about that. How important our mission is in a marriage. Adrian has a mission. It's only his. His mission is to make me feel loved and lovable. No one else on that planet, on this planet, gets that mission, right? So when we think about the kind of love that we are supposed to have for the Lord, each of us have a mission to create an in-love relationship with Jesus. Obviously, it's different than a man and a woman, but it's so close. And we know this because he's called the bridegroom. And we are his bride. So it's the closest thing on earth that can show us how to love our Jesus. And same thing with the Lord. He wants our agape love, not philos. And that's why he calls us his Ephesus or his desirable or his darling. We are responsible to create this atmosphere of love. So... I might have shared this before. Maybe it was at the marriage conference. But <clears throat> for almost a year now, I've made a commitment to make him feel loved and lovable by making a hot breakfast every morning. I know. It's pretty impressive, right? <laughs> I actually do it. But, let me show you. But sometimes it's a philos breakfast. <laughs> it's not an agape breakfast. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> sometimes I'm extra tired. I haven't had my coffee. We woke up late, and I'm like, you're getting oatmeal. <laughs> and not only does he just get oatmeal, but he gets it on the table, and I go sit on the couch in my dirty robe, right, <laughs> just being honest, with my hair pulled up, coffee, and my phone in my hand. And I'm like, can you lock the door? That's a philos love. Because I do it 
But there's really no love there. There's no agape. There's no sitting down at the table talking about his day. You know, smile on my face, <laughs> drinking coffee with a smile, interacting, right? Letting him know that he's loved and lovable before he leaves for work. Jesus wants agape breakfast, <laughs> right? He wants our interaction with him not to check off the box, not to just do it, not to just come to church, not to just serve, not to just pay our tithe. No, but because we love you. We love you, Jesus. In Jeremiah 2.2, this is such a perfect reminder for this. Jeremiah got a word from the Lord because once again, the nation of Israel had fallen away, right? They decided to walk away and serve other gods, and God is saying, go tell them how my heart is breaking for my people. And God says, I still remember the way you clung to me in your youth. In the early days of our union, like a young bride, you loved the vows you made. As I led you from slavery in Egypt to your freedom in Canaan, you drew close to me. Even in the barren wilderness along the way, I filled your every need. God is saying through Jeremiah, he said, remember when you first loved me, you clung to me. You loved your vows to me, the promises that we made together. You know, we cherish our covenant when we have a covenant with someone. We cherish that. We love love, right? Anybody ever loved love when we were young? <laughs> We, you appreciated what I saved you from. Think about that. When was the last time we thought, man, Jesus, if you didn't save me, where would I be? Right? What would my life have looked like if I didn't surrender to you? Feeling that, thinking about that, contemplating that, worshiping him in that is agape love. You came to me for everything you needed. You depended on me. We need to get back to the place where we have a circumstance in our life, and he's the first person we go to, right? He's the first one. Jesus, what are you going to do about this? John, you told me this morning as you got hurt this past week, he's the first person you talked to laying on that CT table. You're talking to Jesus because he's your first love. He's our first love right? He's the, he's the first one we go to. That's what he wants. And we can serve him all day. We can operate in our gifts. We can stand boldly for truth and point out sin all day long, but not have agape for our bridegroom. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, love me, right? Now go back right before we close to this timeline thing, because I think it's very vital because I've lived through this and I've seen it. You call my age the sandwich generation, you know, because up here we have these amazing baby boomers. Go, baby boomers. I love you. You're my mom and dad. I love you. Down here you have these amazing millennials that are a ton of them, and they're so talented, right? I have to ask them for help with my phone and my DVD player and my computer, and I don't know how they do all these amazing things. But I'm right here in the middle, right? And so I've seen it all, <laughs> 
The first generation Christians were so passionate for God. They're so passionate and solid and strong and, and, and just such a gift to us that established the church. They're busy doing church duties, calling out sin with the best of them. But I'll tell you what, I've seen a few that have done all that, but they didn't model being in love with Jesus to their children. And I can only whisper what happened, right? Because our kids don't need to see us busy. They need to see us loving Jesus. And this is the church that Jesus is talking to. He's saying the second generation, this third generation has lost the idea of what it means to be in love. In Revelation 2, 5, it says, think about how far you've fallen Repent and do the works of love you did at first. And I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place of influence if you don't repent. Now that is so harsh and that feels so, uh, right? It feels like a punch in the gut. But Jesus is warning us. It doesn't even have to happen, right? He's saying that through the generations, the fire goes out. The influence will wear out unless we model the love for Jesus. You know, we personally um, had this happen. Our little church in Wycliffe, it's the most beautiful church. I'll tell you what, don't tell anybody I said this, but if I could take that building and bring it over here, <laughs> place it right here. <laughs> it's got beautiful windows on both sides and old wooden pews and vaulted wood seats. Oh, it's so beautiful. But that was an amazing church for many years. But when we bought it, we bought it with the crafts still in the craft closet, the choir books still in the, in the we bought the whole thing. We bought everything, the silverware still in the drawers. Because what happened? They didn't pass on their love to the next generation. And at one point, they just had to close their doors. And we got a really good deal, right? But we can't let that happen to us in our life. We have to foster the agape love. And I could talk so much about this because you know if you've been married for any period of time that loving feelings just doesn't happen, right? You have to make it happen. And the same thing with Jesus. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, okay, I'm just going to pray for an hour. Right? Let's be honest. Come on, can you be honest? It takes work. It takes devotion. It takes commitment to be in love, just like it does when you're married. So, good news. Let's end on the good news. Revelation 2.7 to the one who overcomes. And let me tell you that it's never too late to overcome. It's never too late to overcome. I will give you access to the feast on the fruit of the tree of life that is found in the paradise of God. This is such a powerful verse because if you remember in Genesis, the tree of life was the tree in the garden of Eden that God was nervous that they would take a bite of that because then they would live forever, right? So in the negative aspect, if we don't foster our love, our agape love with Jesus, our lamp will be removed, right? But on the positive note, 
if you can turn it around and live in that agape love, that passionate love for Jesus, we get to eat of the tree of life. Do you know what that means? That means that, and I interpret this personally for my heritage and my legacy, and I'm going to give you my, our names just because. So if Dominic and Dion and Olivia and Christina and Emily, if they see me and Adrian in love with Jesus, they're going to be in love with Jesus. And then their kids are going to be in love with Jesus. And then their children are going to be in love with Jesus. And then their children are going to be in love with Jesus. Listen, don't listen to me. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. He said, I will give access to the feast on the fruit of the tree of life that is found in the paradise of God. And I call it the family tree of life. Isn't that good? That is so good. That is such good news. Listen, because there is nothing you can do to make your kids love Jesus. I know this. And some of it's very painful. But he's promising you that if you fall in love with him, if you agape him, he's going to give you access to that tree of life. When we foster an atmosphere of agape in our relationship with Jesus, man, he shows up. Would you stand up with me? As we close, we're going to give an opportunity to just tell him that we love him, to just tell him that he's the most important thing in our lives. There's nothing else. There's nothing else.